are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. This is a special edition of Lighthearted, featuring an extended interview with a former lighthouse keeper. Ernie DeRapps, a native Mainer, spent several years in the 1950s and 60s as a Coast Guard lighthouse keeper at four main lighthouses, Monhegan, Fort Point, Heron Neck, and Brown's Head. After retirement, he took up painting at the age of 80. Ernie is now in his early 90s, and he has completed portraits of all 65 lighthouses on the main coast. A book by Ernie Giraffes and his wife Pauline, or Polly, was published by Foghorn Publishing in 2006. Ernie's half of the book was called Lighthouse Keeping. If you turn the book over and upside down, the other half of the book by Pauline Fitzgerald DeRapps was called Light Housekeeping. Ernie and Polly were married for 64 years and had six children. Polly passed away in 2015 and is, of course, greatly missed. But Ernie is staying busy with his painting as well as his children, nine grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. Ernie celebrates his 92nd birthday this month. I visited Ernie DeRapps at his home in Richmond, Maine, last February. With me was my friend Bob Trapani, Jr., Executive Director of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Bob took part in the conversation with Ernie. The reason I waited until now to post this interview is that there was a problem with the sound. We recorded the conversation at Ernie's kitchen table. As we spoke, Ernie kept tapping his fingers on the table. I was aware of it at the time, but I didn't ask him to stop because I was afraid it might interrupt his thought process. I didn't think the sound the tapping was making was very significant. It wasn't until I listened to the tapping later that I realized the tapping went right to the microphone stands and was recorded as a loud boing every time. For that reason, I shelved the interview for almost a year, but I recently listened to it again and I decided that it would be best to release it in spite of the problem. You can hear everything that's said very clearly, and Ernie is great to listen to, and I hate the thought of not using it because of a few little boings. So after a slight delay, here is the interview with Ernie DeRapps, former Coast Guard lighthouse keeper in Maine, accomplished artist, an all-around great guy. Ernie, I understand uh, you were an aerial photographer in the Navy during World War II. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I was fortunate enough while at MCI up in Pittsfield, Maine, uh, the Navy had some people there doing studying and whatnot, and I was able to get my student flying license. So when, after my mother passed away, uh, at the age of 54, I'm the youngest of 14 kids, so uh, I was able to get into the Navy, and my father signed the papers. I was only 18 years old, and I was able to get into the Navy Air Branch. They sent me to photography school, and I spent a couple of years flying up and down the West Coast looking for submarines and balloons that the Japanese were trying to get into the United States. Hmm. 
Wow. Uh, after World War II, you worked as a photographer for some years for the IRS. Uh, you're also in the Naval Reserve. Yes. Uh, you ge- you uh, joined the Coast Guard in the fall of 1955. That's because I didn't want to stay in the Navy because as an aerial photographer, I'd have to be either on an island someplace where there was an airport or I'd be aboard some big ship. And my wife and I loved each other, liked being together, so... She suggested I try the Coast Guard, which stayed pretty close to the coast of the United States. So, mm-hmm. so I joined the Coast Guard, and here I am. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I understand you had a very brief stay at the Deer Island Thoroughfare Light uh, on Mark Island near Stonington. But really, your first lighthouse assignment uh, of uh, any substance was at Monhegan Island in Maine. I believe that started in July 1956. Yes. And uh, by then, you were married and had a son, Tommy. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about your first impressions of uh, the Monhegan, Monhegan Island and Monhegan Light Station? Well, Monhegan being 10 miles off the coast, my wife was a little reluctant to go because she was four months pregnant. But she decided, yeah, we'll go out. And uh, when we got there, wouldn't you know, it had to be the lowest tide possible. And they couldn't drop the ramp down. So my wife had to climb up the greasy, slimy old ladder. And when she got to the top, some of the ladies on the island gave her a big hand and wished her well. So we were kind of in like Flynn after that. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you arrived at Monhegan, there was still a second-order Fresnel lens uh, in use in the lighthouse, right? Yes. And the lens still rotated by means of a clockwork mechanism at that time. You had to wind that. Uh, a thousand pounds. Yeah. Can you describe the mechanism and how that worked? Well, it was a clock type of mechanism. And uh, if I let the weight go all the way down, it took me about a half hour to wind it back up so I got to the point that I preferred to only let it get down about halfway so that it wouldn't take so long to wind it back up Mm -hmm. but uh, the mechanism uh, rotated the lens which was on uh, a base of uh, I can't think of what they call that liquid mercury mercury so that it would turn more easily Mm -hmm. and uh, I just had to make sure there was sufficient mercury in the base and make sure that it was on and and working properly. And the light had to go on a half hour before sunset and stayed on until a half hour after sunrise. Mm -hmm. One of the things you wrote about in in your book was a sailboat wreck in June 1957 at Monhegan. That was an interesting story. Well, I got a phone call probably around... Uh, 11 o'clock in the morning after the fog had lifted somewhat because there were six people in a small boat going from New York going up to Bar Harbor and they came aground on a ledge on Monhegan Island and they got out of the vessel because it was sinking very small holes but it was sinking and they were on the rocks waiting to see what was going to happen. They thought they were going to drown. They thought they were going to die. But finally the frog lifted enough so they could see a dwelling. And one of them went there and the people, there were three phones on the island, one at the store, one at the post office, and one at the lighthouse. 
And of course, it was a Saturday morning, so the post office was closed. If I recall correctly, it was a Saturday morning. Anyway, I got a phone call, so I went down in the Coast Guard truck and picked up those six people, three ladies and three men, and we clothed them, fed them, took care of them until Monday morning so they'd get on the ferry to get back to the mainland. Your second child, Lisa, was born while you were at Monhegan. And uh, what do you remember about uh, that period? Well, uh, we went out there when my wife was four months pregnant, and five months later, she says, I'm going to catch the ferry, go see my parents. And uh, she was gone two weeks and came back with a child, our second child, Lisa Roxanne de Raps. And... Uh, you know, the normal procedure of taking care of a baby and whatnot. She was kept pretty busy, so all I had to make sure was that the light was on the proper time and so forth and so on. And I had one of two trucks on the island, so oftentimes I helped out around the island with the truck. Yeah, not a lot of uh, motor transportation on Monhegan Island. No, it was only a couple of dirt roads. And yeah. The one coming up to the lighthouse, it, I've always liked to tell the story that uh, a young man greeted us and I put my wife and my son in the truck and asked him to bring him up to the lighthouse while I got my gear and all my equipment out of the boat. So he took him up and there's a very steep incline just before you get to the lighthouse. and. Uh, my wife turned and looked at the young driver and said, you know, I'm pregnant. And the poor kid almost fainted. <laughs> so he slowed down, made it a little easier for her. Ernie, I've got a question. The uh, Fresnel lens that Jeremy spoke about, uh, its whereabouts in the end is an unknown. Any idea with that lens, what happened to it after it was removed? As far as I know, it now sets at the main maritime museum down in bath i know there's one down there but i'm not sure if that's the one okay but the one down there may be a first order lens which was uh, a little smaller actually than the second order because the second order had uh, six bullseyes and that's what created the flash mm -hmm. as it turned and the top and the bottom was 360-degree prisms so that there was a constant light as well as a flash. The other question I thought of is, unlike your other light stations where the uh, foghorn was right there, you had Manana Island sound signal station yep. on Manana Island. Did you interact with the keepers over there at all? Occasionally, uh, if I had to go someplace in a hurry, why they would send somebody over because there were three men stationed over there and usually there was always two there because one might be on vacation or sick leave or whatever but uh, I remember one occasion when the head one of that island came over and took care of the light because I had to take my son into the doctor he'd cut his eye or hurt his eye uh, while playing and so I had to take him to the doctor and uh, the doctor said the eye was fine. They put a black patch over one eye. And Tom, uh, Tom had a lot of fun telling people about his 
black eye. <laughs> now, one of the things uh, Monhegan is famous for is its artist's colony. There's been artists uh, spending uh, time out there for a long time. Did you get to know any of the, uh, the artists out there? Well, two houses below the lighthouse was Andrew Winter, a well-known artist, and his wife also was an artist, Mary, and uh, they used to come play cards with us. And uh, before we left, uh, Andrew gave us a beautiful painting of the lighthouse with some children playing out in back of the lighthouse. Unfortunately, I get into a financial problem one time and I sold the painting, which I'm very sorry I did, but I do have photos of it and I think there's a photo in the book that we put together of that painting. Uh, in your wife's uh, part of the book, uh, she wrote about inspections by the Coast Guard Group Commander uh, from Rockland and the District Commander from Boston. Uh, what do you remember about those inspections? Those were pretty interesting. Well, we tried to keep the place clean and painted and all of that, but when the local commander out of Rockland came, uh, the second time he came, he said, I'm not going in that house and dirty it up. She's such a good housekeeper, I don't need to go in there as long as the paperwork is done and everything's okay. So I think she mentions that in the book. Mm -hmm. Sounds like they went, went pretty well for the most oh, part. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure you guys did a great, great job keeping the place spick and span. Uh, also, uh, your first experience with the Flying Santa, who at the time was Edward Rowe Snow, the popular historian, a longtime Flying Santa to Lighthouse Keepers. Your first experience with that was at Monhegan. What, what do you remember about that? Well, he flew over and flew around in order to get our attention, and then he came down a little lower, and he dropped off gifts for my two children, mm -hmm. which was greatly appreciated, and I eventually was able to contact him and thank him for the constant uh, checkup and whatnot. He, I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of times. He was a big influence yeah. on me. His daughter's a good friend as, as well. Uh, quite a quite a character. And uh, you ever meet him? No, Bob? I have not. No, never got to see him. No, that's actually that's my loss. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, big influence. Yeah, on, them all. <laughs> big influence on a lot of a lot of lighthouse buffs in New England for sure. Bob mentioned uh, Manana Island uh, earlier. You wrote about the hermit who lived on Manana. Oh Island. yes, I got to meet him a couple yeah. times. Uh -huh. But uh, he uh, became a hermit because he uh, lost a lot of money during the depression. And uh, but he still had enough so that wintertime he'd go off island and go skiing and whatnot. But I got to meet him a couple times and a very pleasant man to talk with. Very intelligent, really. Mm -hmm. But uh, he lived in the little shanty that he put together from what he could pick up around the island and lived there with his sheep and hens. Mm -hmm. He was happy. Yeah, yeah, well, hard to argue with that if he was happy. Uh, so I guess for many years it was just him and the uh, some animals and the keepers of the fog signal station there on Manana yeah. Island. Yeah. You know what's interesting, Ernie, in reading non-lighthouse books, reading books about, say, Monhegan Island, uh, a lot of times at these offshore stations, if they were on an island, sometimes the keepers and their families kept to themselves. But it doesn't sound like Paula and you did that. I, when I read some of these books, I mean, there's people who actually recount such pleasant memories 
of, of your tenure there at Monhegan Island Light. So you guys are mentioned by name. Um, do you remember meeting a lot of these people who end up uh, writing these books and talking about you guys there? Well, I've always been the kind of guy that likes to chat. So whenever people came up, I, uh, we had a couple of chairs that overlooked the island, or the uh, building part of the island where the buildings were. And uh, my son, Thomas, the oldest boy, he was the one that normally got out there to talk with those people. And, of course, he was only a kid at the time, and everyone seemed to love having him there. So uh, we just did what we had to do and let things go as they went because uh, you never know when there's going to be a problem, when a ship comes aground or whatever, when you take care of whatever's there. And uh, with only two vehicles on the island, I was usually the one that helped out around the island. Did you give summer tourist visits up to the tower? Did, you, did people want to do that type of thing? Very seldom did I let people go up to the lens itself because they tended to put their hands on it, sure. and that meant a cleaning job. Mm -hmm. But uh, occasionally, if they seemed like the right type of people, <laughs> you know, some are bossy, some want to do this, do that, and as long as I could control them, I used to get them up there. That's so. cool. Uh, you were the last family to live at the light station at Monhegan, right? The uh, light was automated. Uh, well, there was one gentleman that came up. I don't remember his name, but he stayed there for a while until it was automated. Mm -hmm. But you um, were actually the last family yeah. to, to live there. There was 35 stairs going up that particular lighthouse. And uh, some people just didn't want to go that far <laughs> climbing up the stairs. But, uh, yeah. There were a few that did. The youngest sat mostly. Mm -hmm. uh, the good news there is that the place has been well cared for with the museum there. Uh, yes. yes. They even have a couple of my paintings out there, I believe. Mm -hmm. Or did have if they haven't sold them. <laughs> oh, no, they love you. Yeah, well, that's great. And you, I don't know if you remember, you and I were there together with a group, uh, I think it was like 2006. I think it was a Friends of Flying Santa trip. Yeah. We were out there, and I took a picture of you in front of the lighthouse that oh. uh, I've used in a couple of with my the books. Bell? Uh, near the bell, but the lighthouse is directly behind yeah. you uh, in yeah. the picture. So anyway, so that was a nice memory. So after Monhegan, you were transferred to Fort Point Light Station in uh, Stockton Springs, Maine, uh, uh, near the mouth of the Penobscot River, after the previous keeper, Ernest Matthey, passed away. Uh, you arrived there just before Christmas in 1957. Uh, what stands out for you about Fort Point Lighthouse? Well, I think the thing that really stands out was that was the first time that I had a fog mill that I had to wind up. And uh, my wife liked it so well because she was grew up in Belfast, only about 12, 14 miles away. And when she passed away, I gathered up my family. We put some of her ashes in the water there because it was her favorite lighthouse. But as far as the light was concerned, it was electric. All I had to do was push a switch. Whereas at Monhegan, I had to actually get into the lens and light it manually because it was what they called an inst IOV, uh, yeah. in incandescent oil vapor. Incandescent lamp. oil vapor, IOV. It's in the book. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. uh, 
it must have been nice to live on the mainland after your time at Monhegan to live on the mainland at Fort Point. Well, my and wife liked it because uh, during the day uh, I could leave for a few hours to take her to the store or whatever. Made her happy. <laughs> you also had the chance to be a scoutmaster of the Boy Scouts. Yeah, that I have always been in scouting, and it was great to be able to be the scoutmaster for that area. And you mentioned the fog bell at Fort Point. You did have to wind that, right? Yeah. Which was uh, kind of finicky from uh, what I what I read. Well, there were times that, uh, I had problems with it, and uh, I'd been ringing it by hand for, I don't know, several hours, almost a half a day, I guess. And come evening, I was ready for a cup of coffee, so I went in the house and asked my wife to go take care of it. And uh, she went out, she rang it a couple times by hand, and she went inside. And next thing I know, the thing was running automatic, all, all together. And uh, I said, how did you fix that? Well, you know, when I was a kid, I worked at the place where they made watches. And I knew something about the mechanisms, and I was able to fix it. <laughs> it's basically a clockwork mechanism. Never went bad after that, as far as I recall. <laughs> so, Ernie, at, that, at Four Point, did you ever have a, a point in time where the electric power would go off for any duration of time? And if it did, uh, what did you do with the, uh, the light at that point? We had a standby generator, and uh, I could go down and start the generator. The hard part was knowing when the power came back on because you never knew because I was using the generator for power. But uh, usually I got to know neighbors and I asked them to call me when the power came back on so that I would know I could go turn off the generator and turn back onto the regular power system. Central main power. <laughs> what kind of traffic was going up and down, because that's the entrance to the Penobscot River there, what kind of traffic were you seeing at your, you know, in your time as keeper? Mostly it was uh, traffic going up to uh, Bangor or to uh, um, what's the name of that other community <laughs> on the... Oh, you got Brewer? Bucksport. Yeah, some up the Brewer, yeah. but the one nearest the big bridge. That's Bucksport. Bucksport, yeah. My memory isn't what it used to be. I'm getting old, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, uh, as far as that power was concerned, I was very fortunate to have that generator. They, the government took good care of stuff, and... I was responsible, and I'd been an engineman in the service, in the Coast Guard, as well as in the Navy. Don't recall any real problems with it. Now, uh, I read that you had uh, new fencing put in at Fort Point, because that's a pretty good drop on the cliff there, and you had kids playing outside. So you, you had, uh... Yeah, they put up, I asked for a fence, and they brought one. It was nothing more than a snow fence, but it worked. That's, yeah. That's what kept my kids from going over the drop of about 80 or 90 feet into 80 or 90 feet of water. Yeah, you needed something there. Also, you had a nice uh, outdoor fireplace put in there that you did a lot of your cooking on. Yeah, we had company quite frequently. Yeah. My wife's parents and uh, nieces and nephews. We had a good time while we were there. Funny story your wife wrote about uh, something, a uh, little boo-boo that she made involving the flag <laughs> at Fort Point. <laughs> 
Yeah, she never forgave herself for that. She was uh, a cold morning. I don't remember, I was doing paperwork or something. She says, I'll put the flag up for you today. I said, okay, go ahead. So she went up and put the flag up and came back in. About uh, mid-afternoon, got a phone call. It's for Pauline. Okay, I handed it to her. Oh, the Coast Guard's sending up a vessel. We got a helicopter coming. We got a lot of things happening up there. The guy gave her a real tough time for a couple of seconds there. And she almost started to cry. And she said, well, what's, what's wrong? What's the problem? He says, you've got the flag upside down. And from there on, whenever she put the flag out, she always checked, <laughs> make sure it was up properly. Of course, the flag uh, upside down is a distress signal. That's traditionally. right. So just a slight, slight. You learned a lesson. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, so your next uh, station after Fort Point was Heron Neck Light. Stag uh, only. Stag station on Green Island near Vinyl Haven. That was 59 to 61. Uh, stag station meaning it was male Coast Guard personnel only. Uh, so you lived there without your family. They, uh, they lived on shore. So that was quite a, quite a switch. Uh, must have been kind of a hard transition for everybody. Yeah. But eventually I found a place that I could afford. As a seaman, I didn't have much money, but I could afford this little place on Vinyl Haven, and I brought the family out there. There was only two children at the time. And my wife says, you mean I got to live in this poor place? It was in pretty bad shape. I could afford it. And I eventually put in a furnace and the stuff to keep the house warm and all of that. So she grew used to it. She was an Irish gal. A little on the stubborn side, but uh, we loved each other and lived together, so it worked out. Yeah. How many men were assigned uh, to the Heronek Light Station, and how many were typically there at one time? Well, it was a three-man station, but usually there was only two there, and oftentimes just one. And that was when, back in those days, you had to do... uh, correspondence courses in order to gain a rate and that gave me an opportunity when the other guys were gone I could sit down and work on that and I eventually made first class before I finally got out. I actually took the chief's exam and passed it at 85 85 points however uh, I was sent to sea on crutches and after two and a half months, I had a nervous breakdown, so I never did make chief. I mm. was discharged as a first-class petty officer. Huh. Now, you were the, the station, station engineer at Heron Neck, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, w- what were your responsibilities? Uh, Maintain everything that went along with electricity and all of that. I had the two generators, and we'd operate those one at a time, alternating them so that you could repair anything that needed to be done. And I had to take care of the cistern, which is where we got our water, and uh, mostly come off the roof. And I was in charge of all electrical and, and engineering stuff. And the commanding officer was a first class, I was only second class at the time. and. Uh, he was a little hard to get along with, but we managed. Sometimes it's hard to get along with someone in charge. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. 
Ernie, Heron Neck is known to have some really rough waters out front, uh, but coming in on the backside, you guys would have come in with your boats and landed at the boathouse in that cove, which was pretty protected. But before you would get to that cove, you'd come around Boilers Point, and that's known for being really rough. Any experiences coming in and out of there that you can remember? Yes. Um, we had a 16-foot motor lifeboat, which was unsinkable. And whenever we had to go for mail or whatever, we used that. But one time, I got a knock on the door of the lighthouse, and I opened it up, and there stood a man with a two-year-old girl under his arm and a boy beside him, about five. And he told me that his nephew was on the other side of the island. The surf was three to four foot high. The kid could not swim, and he was on a rock that was going to be flooded because the tide oh, the was tide. coming. Yes. Wouldn't you know, our unsinkable boat was in for repair. I had my own 10-foot punt with a 5-horsepower motor, 5 or 10, I can't remember for sure. I think it was a 5-horse. So I said to the fellow in charge, I'll take my boat and I'll go around and see if I can find the kid and save him. Fortunately, although the surf was high, I was able to f see him, finally, the boy, and I motored inside of the rocks, ledges, and whatnot, and I made several passes by the kid, but he didn't want to get in another boat. And I said, well, it's either that or you're going to drown. And after about the fourth or fifth pass, I just grabbed him by his shirt and pulled him in the boat and took him into shore and left my boat there tied up so I wouldn't lose it and walked him back to the lighthouse. So I was fortunate with God's hand to save a life wasn't all my doing. Oh, that's that's was a great helping. story. It can be a rough spot coming around there. So, Well, when you have three or four foot surf in a small boat, you've got to be very careful. And I was fortunate. I took on some water, but I got the kid saved. Yeah, because as you know, at that point, the sea rises abruptly there because of the ledge at Boilers Point, and it really can create for some, some chaotic seas. Oh, yes, you see a lot of white water. But I was fortunate the good Lord was with me. Oh, that's an incredible story. Just one more question about Heron Neck. What, again, uh, so you had three three men assigned, and uh, typically uh, two or sometimes only one there at a time. But during your stay there, typically how many days on and how many days off did you have? Do you remember? Oh, my goodness. Usually about a month on, a month off. So you did have a good amount of time with your family at the home? Yeah, family. I finally brought them to Vinyl Haven so yeah. I could see them when I went in for mail or whatnot, get yeah. a hug and a kiss, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. One more thing with the, the hair and neck. I think personally that setting is one of the prettiest for main lighthouses with the rocks. It is beautiful. You can look back and you can see the Camden Hills. Did you enjoy a lot of sunsets and things of that nature from oh, there? Oh, yes. Beautiful spot, but... Uh, Isolation is not something that one likes. <laughs> but I was fortunate that uh, I wasn't alone all the time. And I was asked to do most of the cooking, so I could cook what I liked. <laughs> and the heck with the other guys. <laughs> but uh, They all seemed to appreciate my cook capabilities because I'd been a Boy Scout most of my life, and I was used to it. Do you have your specialties? Uh, steak. <laughs> and most everybody likes a steak now and then. Yeah. But I also like pork chops and all of that. And, of course, I always had to have potatoes. I'm a potato man. And 
always enjoyed potatoes. Living the youngest of 14 children, we had to survive on pretty much what my father grew. Although he worked in a woolen mill for finance, but uh, there was very little finance back in those days when you even working in a mill. But uh, we're survivors. So yeah. are, you, are you aware that the, uh, the lens from hair and neck is, uh, is on exhibit at Coast Guard Station Rockland today? No. Yes, it survives. It's on, it's on exhibit at the station. Wonderful. Yeah. i got to get down there someday. But I no longer drive. I had a couple of near accidents, and I gave it up, and I gave my car to my daughter. So, so your last light station was Brown's Head. Vinyl Haven Island. Yeah, on Vinyl Haven. Bolted uh, to the ledge. Yeah, uh, July 1961 to 1962. Uh, you got to live there with your family again. So uh, let's talk about uh, Brown's Head a bit. Uh, again, must have been uh, very happy, a happy time to get back with your family at Brown's Head. Yeah, it was a very happy time. And uh, we were there for a short while and an inspection came up. Well, as far as the uh, local fellow in charge at Rockland, he would come and look at the paperwork and all the outside buildings and all, but he says, I won't bother to go inside. I may make a mess for your wife. She was a good housekeeper and he knew it. So, But uh, then one day the district inspectors came and that was a different story. There were three inspectors. One looking around all through the house, one talking with me, one talking with my wife. And the one looking around went to the stairs and my wife said, I'm sorry, you can't go up there. Two children are sleeping. Well, that didn't go over too good with them. So the fellow asked my wife to come over and sit down next to him so she could talk with her. And what has happened? She sat on his hat. That didn't go over too good. <laughs> so, after a short inspection, which of course everything was good because we knew they were coming and I was always trying to do everything properly, house cleaned up and outside all in good shape. So uh, the man in charge said, Duraps, you've never been to sea. That's right. Well, we're going to change that. So he decided to send me aboard ship. And I had barely been aboard ship when I was playing son with my oldest son, tennis, broken ankle. Went to the doctor and he says, well, you got to be on crutches. And uh, when does your ship sail? And I told him the date. He says, I want you here the day after that. Okay. So I went back on the proper date. He says, I got good news and bad news. I said, well, you might as well tell me the bad news. Well, the bad news is the ship hasn't sailed. They're waiting for one more person to fill their compliment. Go home and get your sea bag. So I went home, got my sea bag, went aboard ship on crutches. And that happened to be, normally you'd go out for 20 some days and then come back to port. But in this particular case, the captain decided he wanted to visit Bermuda. <laughs> so that meant 
three months away from home. And that meant two and a half months on the crutches in three compartments. The head, the boy toilet, the office, and the dining room. After two and a half months of that, it got to me, and I had a nervous breakdown. So they sent me to the funny farm in New York, and from there, after a short stay, they discharged me with 28 and a half years military. That meant a lot less retirement money, but nothing I could do about it. When you're in the military, you do as the upper ones tell you. It's a shame, but uh, that's life. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Going back to to Brown's head, one of my one of my favorite stories that you wrote about in your book during your time at Vinyl Haven was uh, it's it's kind of it's it's so remote there on uh, on Vinyl Haven where that lighthouse is located. We Bob and I have been there together, and uh, you wrote about a time when there was a, a lot of snow, <laughs> and you had to you had the you had a truck there. On and, the hill. Yeah, you had to get your son Tommy to the school bus, which was like a mile away. Yep. And one time you described actually tying a, a, ro- a rope around him to get him uh, through the snow to the truck. Yeah. Uh, the only way to, you could be sure to, to get him through the, the snow to the uh, truck was by... Uh, to, well, must have been about 100 yards or so. <laughs> yeah. So I so dragged him school. up there and... He thought that was really something, so he had something to tell everybody at school how his father put a rope around him and helped him up the snow, yeah, in, up the walkway. And you said that Polly was uh, very impressed that you got him to school that day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, life is what you make it. <laughs> yeah. You also wrote about uh, enjoying a lot of good seafood uh, during your time at, at Brown's Head. Oh, yeah. I had my own lobster traps. I was allowed three, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. And there was a clam place in a cove down behind the lighthouse. So I used to get clams and lobster. Mm-hmm. Many an evening after the evening news, my wife would say, uh, I'll help you put the boat over, and I knew exactly what that meant. <laughs> Go get some lobster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're, you uh, described the, you, you were in the Coast Guard uh, not too much longer, and then uh, you worked for the state of Maine for 21 years in, yeah. in a, a few different positions. You retired from the state, working for the, for, for the state in 1990, and you took up painting at the age of 80. And you're an amazing artist, and no, uh, you've had your work exhibited in a number of places. It's God's hands I push the brush. Uh-huh. Uh, but you've uh, you've painted portraits of all 65 main lighthouses, and you've had your work exhibited at the the main lighthouse museum and other places, and it's really impressive work. But what made you decide to take up uh, art uh, at the? <laughs> I don't well, want to say advanced age at the uh, the. the uh, on my 80th birthday, I was sitting at this table, and my wife was across the way, and she says, you know, you're 80 today. I said, yes, I know I'm 80. <laughs> so what about it? Well, it's time for your fifth retirement. I says, okay, I'll retire, but what in the heck am I supposed to do? Honeydews all day? She says, nope. She says, you've been a photographer all your life. You've got over 3,000 colored slides downstairs. Why don't you use them? take up some art. So I did 
I don't know, five or six different paintings. And all of a sudden I read an article because I subscribed to an artist magazine just to get information and whatnot. And I read an article in one of those magazines that to do a big show you need a series, similar theme, similar size and all of that. I says, well, I think I'll go and use that advice. And that's when I started painting the lighthouses. And I've painted all 65 of them after six or eight that I did to get started and see what I could do with it. And uh, she liked those, so she says, yeah, go ahead, 65 along the state of Maine. Consequently, I painted all 65 Maine lighthouses. And I sold one, and I just refinished doing that one mm -hmm. and hung it up with the rest of them down in the basement. Three walls are covered with lighthouse paintings. Uh -huh. They take up about 200 square feet because they're all 16 inches by 20 inches. Uh -huh. Well, in the room we're sitting in, we're looking at one on the wall right here, Rockland Breakwater yep. light. It's a beautiful painting of a, a just a, a really nice style. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's very dramatic, uh, the sky and the, the water. Uh, it's it's not uh, it, uh, I can't say it looks like a certain other artist's style. You have a style of your own. It's really quite striking. So congratulations on doing uh, finishing uh, paintings of every lighthouse. Yeah, like I said, it's God's hands. I push the brush. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Back to Brown's head for just a second, Ernie. Uh, the bell tower had disappeared by 1969 or yeah. 70. Um, but what do you remember in terms of was the I mean, you know, was it foggy a lot there at the entrance to the uh, thoroughfare? Uh, how often you set a half hour uh, to wind the mechanism at Monhegan for the light, you know, for the fog bell at Brown's Head? How, was, how long would that take you? Well, uh, I don't remember how often it rang uh, every 20 seconds or something like that. So that means that uh, winding it up isn't going to last too long if it's going to be banging away every 20 seconds so um, I used to let it get down about halfway and that way I didn't have to wind it up quite so much at one time but uh, it was about a thousand pound weight and even though it was on rollers at, uh, what do you call them bearing type of roller well uh, this goes up and down and, and can't remember what you call those cussed like things. pulley sort of system? Uh, yeah, it's a pulley system, but uh, you don't have to, it takes half of the weight off more or less because you you got three or four runs okay. on uh, a block with a circle. And uh, so anyway, uh, that made it easier to wind it up because it had three lines. But anyway, uh, we were bolted right to the ledge and there was a boat building for a boat and a ramp going down into the water because a lot of supplies are brought in by the Coast Guard uh, weather cutters and I'd have to go out in the small boat to get the supplies. And also, that's how I went out to get the lobsters and so forth. So, You know but, what struck me, uh, having stayed there overnight at the uh, keeper's house at one point, uh, and sitting in a kitchen with the windows open, of course, this is the summertime, 
the water is like almost right there. It's right up against the bulkhead. I can't think of too many keepers' houses where the water was that close, where you could, you know, the, it was just an interesting um, experience. Well, to feel that close to the water from a house. There's very few lighthouses that are that close to the water, but in a good southwesterly storm, the water would fly right up onto the windows. And when it got done, well, you had to go out and clean all that salt off the windows. But, uh, well, my wife and I not only loved each other, but we liked being together. And being together meant a great deal to both of us and for the children. I think that the short stay that we had there was greatly enjoyed because we were together again, because I had been on the stag station for, I don't remember, several months. I, I think you've got a list of the various ones. If not, it's in the book here. It tells how long we were at any one particular station. But um, having family and all of that was fine, but then in inspection, as I said, my wife sat on the captain's hat, off I went to sea. <laughs> well, at least you'll be happy to know that the Fresnel lens remains in place and is still in service today. That brown said, The yeah. same one that you would have uh, polished and kept looking nice. Well, good. Probably doesn't look as nice as when you were there, though. <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't, yeah. Well, I was always conscious of trying to keep things correct and, and looking good because I figured that was my job. Well, on that note, <laughs> Ernie, you've had a, a great career at Lighthouses and a great, great life, great family life, and uh, I really appreciate you spending time with us today. Uh, really, really appreciate it, and thank you, Bob Trapani, also for being part of this conversation today. You, you uh, know what, Jeremy, too, I think we can thank Ernie mm -hmm. for all of the lectures and all of the continuing. Oh, yeah. You continue to share, as you had up and until in your book also. recently. To be able to share your story, uh, we had him at the Lighthouse Symposium yes. you know, just a couple years ago here. So, uh, all those times you've been reaching out and letting people know about lighthouses helps us in preservation because it helps the education. And they're hearing it from somebody who lived it, which is really cool. I don't know how many now, but I understand a lot of lighthouses are being maintained by special groups mm -hmm. that uh, try to get enough money to maintain them, make sure they're painted and keep them up. I don't know how many in the state of Maine are being maintained. Do you have any idea? I think most of them. We're actually fortunate in this state to have a really good group of nonprofits and yeah. government agencies that are responsible for some of them. Um, there's very few Maine lighthouses that we would have to worry about, and that's actually a great story. Yeah. Well, I understand that um, Heronek had a fire when the power had gone off, and then there was a surge of power, and they think that's what started the fire. But they were able to get it out before it burned completely down, and so just in the roof, as I know. Well, it's funny you say that. I had posted a picture of us yeah. uh, on Facebook here when we, while I was here, and the couple who owns the lighthouse today said to say hello to you, the new keepers there at Heronet. They have restored the whole keeper's house, and it Wonderful. looks glorious. I had the pleasure of visiting there. It looks beautiful. So it's well being well taken care of. So your lighthouses is that, that you were at are in good hands. Yes. Well, so again, thank you so much, Ernie. I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you'll you. have to go downstairs and see my collection. Oh, we will. <laughs> <laughs> Take thank your camera if you like. Thanks so much. Well, you know, I've always said life is what you make it.
I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ernie DeRaps, and I hope you didn't mind those boings too much. My thanks again also to Bob Trapani Jr., Executive Director of the American Lighthouse Foundation, for helping with the interview. The book, Lighthouse Keeping slash Lighthousekeeping, by Ernie and Pauline DeRaps, is available from Foghorn Publishing. Go to their website at shop.foghorn.publishing.com and search by the title or by DeRaps. That's D-E-R-A-P-S. You can also see some of Ernie's paintings of Maine lighthouses at pigmentartstudio.com. That's P-I-G-M-E-N-T-A-R-T-S-T-U-D-I-O.com, pigmentartstudio.com. You'll see his Lighthouses of the Maine Coast series, as well as some nature paintings and seascapes. That's all for this special edition of Lighthearted. As always, thanks for listening, and keep a good light.